one. We looked at this passage, the whole thing, last week, and we're going to hone in on a few verses this week. So Genesis chapter 1, we're looking at verses 26 to 31. If you're using um, the Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's pretty close to page 1. It's the very first story in the Bible, easy to find. We've been talking for the past several weeks about living lives that have rhythm to them. Uh, the rhythm of, of remaining in Christ and bearing fruit for Christ. The rhythm of, of rest and work. Uh, many of us have been working on our rule of life as a way of being more intentional about living this rhythm of life, um, a, a rhythm, a life which is balanced, which, which is healthy, which is purposeful, and above all, which is fruitful. And, and this morning, I was going to finish off this series by looking at how we can keep our focus on grace and not let this stuff become legalistic, because that's always a danger for us, right? But as I preached these sermons over the last few weeks, and as we've worked on our rule of life together, and as we've discussed it together, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of keeping grace in focus. Uh, we've been reminding one another that our efforts to, to live a life which has rhythm and balance aren't going to earn us anything from God. But rather, they're just ways in which we can um, take advantage of the grace which God is already freely offering us in Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we saw that remaining in Christ the vine is not earning us anything, but, but rather it's drawing life from the, the life that Jesus is already freely offering us. And, and last week, we saw that Sabbath and, and God's other creation rhythms are, are not so much religious obligations to be met, but rather they're gifts to be received. So um, we want to continue to remember grace, but... But I had a different thought for this sermon. As I, as I was thinking about rule of life, I realized we were talking about rest. We were talking about prayer, about drawing away to spend time with God. But, but I hadn't addressed our work, which is an important part of our rhythm too, right? It's an important part of our life. And I want us to remember that according to God's word, our work is not something that we have to get through to get onto the good stuff or the spiritual stuff. But rather, work is important to our spiritual life too. So why do you work? Or if you don't have a job, why are you going to Terrence's uh, transition meeting Wednesday night to try to find one? I grew up in a family which was really big into work. My dad loves to work hard all the time. And whenever possible, he loved to get his family working too. He loved the, the, the saying, many hands make light work. And it didn't take us kids long to realize that we were the many hands. <laughs> and, and so as a kid, I learned to want to work as little as possible. And the only reason I could see to work was to get paid a lot of money to do it. Um, so why do you work? Is it for the money? Is it because financially you have to work? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker which goes, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Uh, is that why you work? Or do you work to get out of the house because it's boring at home? Or do you work because you feel important at work, you feel needed and valued and that fulfills a need for you and so you, you uh, 
go off to work? Or, or do you work because um, you have a job you love? It, it fulfills you. Maybe it fulfills your competitive nature. Or, or maybe uh, you love to be around people. You love to help people, and, and so it fulfills you in that way. Or maybe it fulfills your drive to organize things, or it fulfills your drive to research and, and learn. Why do you work? Well, I want to think this morning about what God has to say about work, particularly in the scripture that we read this morning in Genesis 1. Verse eight, uh, 28 in particular, we read that God blessed humankind and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Theologians have often referred to this verse as the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. They point out that this is the first and the original command that God has given humankind. Before the Ten Commandments, before the greatest command to love one another, before the Great Commission, God told humans right back at the beginning, and not just God's people, but all humans, to reproduce, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to rule over the animals. And that original command has never been rescinded or overruled by any other. It still remains our most basic calling and responsibility as human beings. Now notice in Genesis 1 that God gives this command right on the heels of verse 27 of God celebrating that he's created us in his own image. Don't miss the fact that God's command for us to reproduce, to subdue the earth, and to rule its creatures has everything to do with our being made in God's image. You know, unfortunately, this language of subdue and rule has given a lot of people the idea that, that Christians don't need to care about the environment, but rather God's given us free license to exploit it any way we want, which is really crazy if you think about it. Uh, why would God make a wonderful creation and call it good and then give us carte blanche as a bunch of tyrannical rulers to just oppress and violate his good creation for our own selfish ends? No, when we read these words subdue and rule, we shouldn't be thinking of how an evil and tyrannical ruler would subdue and rule. But rather, we should be thinking about the God in whose image we're made subdues and rules. In the act of creation itself, God subdues the darkness. God subdues the chaos to create a habitable world. And then after God fills the world's emptiness with life, he rules over his creatures with, with gracious generosity. In the words of Psalm 104, he makes grass grow for the cattle. He, he gives water for all the beasts of the field. God rules over his creatures in goodness providing what they need because he cares for them. So God's rule is a good one. It's a caring one. And when God subdues, he subdues chaos, he subdues danger and evil so that his creation can thrive. And because we're made in God's image, that's how we're to subdue and rule as well. So hear those words that way when you read them. We have to remember that before the Industrial Revolution, before light bulbs and locomotives and uh, steam shovels and dynamite, that Earth was a huge and, and in many ways a frightful place. Large parts of it were wild and were untamed, and, and people were by and large small and, and weak in comparison. And so when you hear these words, 
subdue the earth. Don't think of powerful modern people callously cutting down rainforests and drilling oil wells in national parks, but, but rather think precarious ancient peoples learning to build warm homes so that their, their children could survive the harshness of winter. Think of them learning to dig wells so they could have clean water to drink which wouldn't make them sick. Think of them learning to breed crops so that there was enough food for their families to make it through another year. That's what subduing meant until a century or two ago. All right, so let's look further at these three aspects of God's creation mandate and see how each one is a way in which we reflect God's image as we work. So first, God says, be fruitful and increase in number. Anyone who has children knows that this is work. Right, ladies? Right, dads? <laughs> Conceiving them, that was fun. But carrying them to term, birthing them, caring for them, raising them, disciplining them, teaching them, that's work. Being fruitful is a lot of work. And in this work of reproducing, we, we imitate God. We reflect God's own image. I mean, a number of us have had this experience. Our new baby is born, and, and we hold their tiny frame for the first time, and, and we think, wow, there's a, there's a new person in the world. And, and wow, I had something to do with it, with bringing this, this, this new life into the world. It's utterly amazing. Just as, as God alone creates life and, and fills the world with life, so we get to reflect God's image. We get to imitate God and actually participate in bringing new lives into the world. As God tries to, to help us to then grow up and, and mature, and God feeds us and clothes us, and God teaches us and disciplines us. So we, if we're parents or, or, or caregivers or teachers as well, we have the privilege of being responsible for, of, of caring for, of helping to, to raise and, and to contribute to the development and, and maturing of other human beings. What a sacred task. What a privilege to reflect God in these ways for those that God gives the ability and the calling to do that. It's part of his creation mandate to, to fill the earth with life. God loves life. And God wants life to flourish, and he's invited us to help. Now, you know, from, from time to time, there are concerns in the world about overpopulation. There are valid concerns about that. But you know, that's not an issue in Western countries. In the West, any population growth that we experience is the result of immigration, demogra dem demographers tell us. Westerners actually have been having fewer and fewer children. After all, children, they, they cramp our style. They cut into our um, affluent lifestyle. So we don't want as many of them. That's, that's the, the Western mentality. And so in the West, the population is actually in danger of declining. And uh, Western civilizations are in danger of becoming unsustainable, and you may have read about that in the newspaper from time to time. That's one reason that Anne and I felt free to have more kids than our parents had had. Yeah. <laughs> um, because God loves life, and God invites us to be fruitful. So second, not only to be fruitful to fill the earth, but God also says to subdue the earth. And we uh, touched on this. In creating, God has subdued the earth. God has tamed the chaos. He's pushed back the waters and held them in place so that dry ground would appear on which we can live. I mean, think of the, the tsunamis and the hurricanes and the, the floods which have struck 
various places in the past decade and the devastation and the, and the tragic chaos they've wrought. Aren't you glad that that's the exception and not the rule? That's because God has, has separated the waters from the dry ground. And uh, it tells us elsewhere in scripture, he's created a boundary that the water can't cross. Though granted, tragically, that boundary can be fuzzy for those who live near the edge of it from time to time. But, but the fact that we usually live relatively safe and secure lives, high and dry, is thanks to God's good work of subduing. And God has invited us to continue this work. Evidently, in, in God's good creation, there were still aspects of it that needed further subduing. And, and God turned to us and, as his creatures and said, okay, your turn. I've subdued, now you continue to subdue. You're made in my image, you subdue too. Invent fire and so subdue the cold and the darkness of night. Invent a ladder so you can subdue that gap between your highest reach and those apples at the top of the tree. Invent bridges and boats and so subdue the, the isolating effects of that river that, that you can't get across that's cutting you off from what's on the other side. Wash the dishes and so subdue the, the dirty mess on your stoneware. You know, as a younger Christian, as I was learning to view work from a biblical point of view, and as I was learning what it meant to be made in God's image, um, I found new contentment in washing the dishes, believe it or not. <laughs> I realized that, see, theology is practical. I realized that, that when, when God created, God made order out of chaos, and that was God's work. And when I wash the dishes, that's what I'm doing too. I'm taking these messy, soon-to-be unsanitary dishes, which have become chaos, and I'm restoring order so that they can be made useful again. And um, in doing that, I'm reflecting God's image. I'm participating in the work that God created me to do. Well, now we have a dishwasher, and I'm happy to find other ways to um, you know, reflect God's image. But I, I learned to be content and to actually see that my work was imaging God. All right, let's move on. Third, God says to rule over the animals. Now let's think more about this word rule. You know, people have often recognized that the right to rule comes with responsibilities. That, that people have often recognized that rulers have responsibilities to, to care for and to protect the people that they're entrusted to rule. Now, to, of course, too often in history, this has been pure theory, right? And, and rulers have abused their right. They've shirked their responsibilities. But we all look at them and we know that that's wrong because... Um, the fact that, that rule can be abused doesn't change the fact that when God tells someone to rule, God expects them to care for those that they rule. That's reflected in the Bible when the kings of Israel are called shepherds. That's because those kings were responsible before God for caring for, for feeding, for protecting, for guiding their sheep, their people. And so when God tells mankind to rule the animals here in Genesis 1, God doesn't mean to exploit them for your own selfish purposes, but rather to exercise leadership over them for their own good. In other words, it's probably safe to say not just that animals were created for our benefit, but that we were also created for their benefit. And every child who's nursed a, a bird with a broken wing back to health knows this. 
After all, every animal is, is an amazing creation we see here at Genesis 1, designed and, and made by the hand of a powerful and imaginative God. And, and God made them all and said, it is good. These animals reflect my glory. They're my creatures. And as rulers of God's creation, then, God has made us stewards of what God has made. That's why Proverbs 12.10 says, the righteous care for the needs of their animals. We see Adam beginning to exercise this caring rule in Genesis 2 as he names the animals in the Garden of Eden. Chances are he's not just coming up with random names to call each of them, but, but rather he's getting to know their, their characteristics. He's beginning to categorize them. He's becoming the first biologist. And so in biology, we continue to, to get to know and to understand those that we're entrusted with rulership over. In ecology, we seek to protect God's creatures and his creation. In farming and ranching and, and shepherding and animal husbandry and veterinary medicine, we continue to exercise caring oversight over those that God has made. And you know, a good farmer, even if he plans to eventually eat some of his animals, he still cares for them with respect and concern and, and doesn't take it lightly that that animal is going to give its life to feed his family. So whether we're being fruitful, or whether we're subduing, or whether we're ruling, take just about any vocation. Take education, take construction, take hospitality, take writing, take medicine, take research, take homemaking. Each one is a part of a big web of interlocking tasks which together involve our fulfilling God's creation mandate. As we, as, as humankind, and imitate God by turning chaos into creation and filling empty places with life and helping that life to flourish. You may know that the reformer Martin Luther famously said that there are very few professions which can't be done to the glory of God. I think he, the exceptions he gave were prostitution and theft and usury and maybe a couple others. But almost anything else can in one way or another fulfill God's creation mandate taking the creation that God has placed us in and making something of it, exploring it, better understanding it, developing it, stewarding it. In fact, the Bible suggests that we're going to continue to, to work in the new creation after Jesus returns and restores all things. Jesus talks about people ruling cities in the life to come. That sounds like work to me. He, uh, in the book of Revelation, talks about um, people in the New Jerusalem serving Jesus of kings bringing their splendor into the city, it all suggests that work of various types must be going on. Now, of course, if we keep reading in Genesis 3, we realize that work as we presently experience it has been complicated by God's curse, which has added toil to our work. That's the part of work we don't like, right? The toil. <laughs> but the toil will no longer be present in the new creation. The work we'll do in the life to come will be free from all the hassles and the stresses that we experience now. Then work will no longer be mindless or, or toilsome. We'll no longer have a job that we hate. We'll no longer have a boss that we hate. Or, or, or um, we'll no longer have um, our effects undermined and, and by obstacles and oppositions that, that people and circumstances throw up, which frustrate us. We'll no longer have um, inhumane working hours. We'll have time for the perfect rhythm and, and balanced life that God wants us to have, which will bring us joy and delight. Okay, so let's get practical now. 
What does all this have to do with your job, with your work? Let me give you four applications that I think we can draw from this. First, don't let the toil turn you off from work like happened to me when I was a kid. We all know that, that work is a mixed bag, right? In this life, we're, we're never going to escape the toil, but that doesn't mean that we can't take delight in a job well done and, and find satisfaction and meaning in aspects of our work. Second, recognize that the system is broken. Not only is there toil in our work, but we live and we work in a system which can add stress and extra burden and unfairness to our work. You know, many times, especially in recent years, we, we've experienced, as to use the analogy from the book of Exodus, as we've been asked to make more bricks with less straw, right? As people are laid off and their jobs are piled onto our jobs, the system is broken. And, and not only can the system wind up oppressing us, but the system can also implicate us in oppressing others. And so sometimes we find ourselves in ethically compromised situations in our work when, when it's hard to do our job in a way which honors God. Martin Luther may have been right in theory that almost any job can be done to the honor of God, but in reality, the system is broken and corrupt. In reality, often the system wants to subdue the earth just to increase the bottom line for the stockholder or to be able to say we've done it before our competitors. In reality, often the system's idea of ruling the animals means just to raise them in, in um, conditions so oppressive and distressing that it would make any child cry. And the only reason we as adults have reconciled us to it is because it's hard to say no to the affordability and the convenience of the drive through window. And so sometimes if, if we're honest, we realize that our work is, is supporting and is aiding a system which is exploiting and is hurting other people or is hurting God's creation. Instead of stewarding for and, and uh, sorry, caring for and, and stewarding the world God has made, we realize we're working for a system which is actually quickly turning the creation back into chaos. And here the question of ethics come in. We, we have to, to um, live and work in, in this world with its corrupt system, so how do we do it in a way which honors God? Can we make widgets for the honor of God, even if those widgets are being used to build warships, some of which may kill innocent human beings? Can we make beautiful art for the glory of God, even if that art is being used to sell people products that they don't need, leading them further and deeper into credit card debt? These are the real kinds of issues we struggle with with our work, right, as Christians? And, and different Christians have answered these questions in different ways. Some have, have um, retreated from the world system, and they've set up parallel societies and parallel economies which they believe are more honoring to God, more pure, more righteous. Others have felt, on the other hand, that, that their responsibility is, is to do their own job, whatever it is, with as much integrity and faithfulness as possible to God's glory. And, and if the fruit of their labors, labors is used by someone further up on the food chain in an unethical or an impressive way, an oppressive way, what can they do about that? That's not their responsibility. Many of us are somewhere in the middle between these two ends, and, and we struggle. We wrestle with our, our consciences, and, and sometimes we may need to take a stand and, and give up a job or give up a promotion um, for the sake of our convictions. Other times we, we may find ways to, to hang in there and, and to honor God as best we can in the midst of what we know is a broken and a corrupt system.
which is much bigger than us. The important thing, what, however we wind up coming out on these things, is that we're listening to our consciences, that we're listening to the, that quiet voice of the Holy Spirit, that we're seeking input and, and counsel from others who we trust, and that we're continuing to grow and to learn and to think through biblically better how to know what God's will is as it comes to our work. All right, third application, more positively, learn to view your work as worship. Theologian J.I. Packer puts it this way. He, he gives the analogy of, of being a young piano student. He, he says you may practice and you may practice a piece of music and you may learn to play it without a single mistake. But just because you play it with technical excellence doesn't mean you've, you've understood the piece. Or that, the compo or that you've understood what the composer was trying to communicate through it. Years later, you may come back as a more mature musician to that same piece and have a whole new level of understanding and you play, may play it with a whole new level of, of feeling and expression. And Packer says our work is like that. It's, it's a constant growing and, and expanding of our understanding and our appreciation for all that God has created. Because like the composer composing that piece of music, everything God has made, God has made with a meaning and with a purpose, with an intention in mind. Excuse me. He's, he's put it there to glorify him. God has made it to, to show something about God or, or uh, to, to teach us something about God's ways and, and purposes. Or he's made it there for a particular purpose. And so part of our task as the creatures that he has made in his own image is to discover what the meaning and the purpose is of all the things that he's made. And so Packer says, as you go through your life and your work and you come across something God has made, pick it up, so to speak, and examine it and ask yourself and ask God, what is this for? What is this for? What's God's intention in, in having made this? What's its value from God's perspective? What does it show us about God and God's ways? And then as you begin to discover the answers, put that thing to work for that purpose, for the purpose for which God has intended it. And if it's being misused or it's being abused for the wrong purpose, set that right as best as you can. And then finally, offer all of your efforts in those things back to God as an act of worship. So for example, you're a farmer, you till the soil and, and you realize that God has created this soil among other reasons to provide food for his creatures. The soil is teaching us something about uh, God's generous provision, about God's bountiful hospitality and care for his creatures. And, and so the farmer puts that soil to use for this purpose and, and he reaps a crop and he gives God the glory, grateful for be, having been able to participate in God's care in feeding people. Or how about the accountant? She looks at her account books and she asks, what are all these numbers for? <laughs> well, counting, keeping track of money. So that a business knows if it's bringing in more money than it's spending out. Those numbers, she realizes, shine light on the darkness of the company's financial situation. These numbers, they make order out of what otherwise might be financial chaos. These numbers provide accountability and honesty, showing that money isn't being stolen or misused. 
And so the accountant can, can crunch her numbers, she can produce reports, and she can offer it to God as an act of worship. Okay, fourth application and related to that, sometimes we may need to transform our work into something more honoring to God. Uh, for grad school once, I had an opportunity to do an, uh, an interview uh, with a Christian lawyer in Vancouver, and he told me about his journey um, of reclaiming his profession as something honorable to God. He said in his experience, most lawyers that he, he knew um, viewed themselves as white knights, that they, um, they uh, love to swoop in as, as valiant saviors and, and rescue their clients from all their troubles and you know, battling and bashing the opponents and the, the evil opponents in the process. And, and he said, as a Christian, God had taught him to see lawyering in a different way. And so he was coming to view himself as a reconciler and a bridge builder. He said, lawyering or lawyers have a valuable and God-given calling to step into broken situations with frayed relationships and people who can't work out their differences and to try to be reconcilers when possible, to, to help people to communicate better, to, to work together to, to settle misunderstandings and work out differences and, and when possible to bring healing in relationships. And so he was seeking to transform lawyering to, to redeem that profession for Christ. Now, it's easy to pick on lawyers, right? But we can probably point to almost any profession and, and point to ways that its purposes and its motives have become corrupted or twisted. And the question is, what can I do to transform my profession and its goals and its motives in a way which bring greater honor to God? Okay, so here's the challenge as we think about those four applications, and there are others as well. As you work on your rule of life, don't forget about your work. Your work is spiritual too. Have you thought about it that way? What steps may you need to take? What goals may you want to set to make your work part of a fruitful life which honors God? One step you could take is, is to read a book about work from God's perspective and just pursue this further. And I put a few in your bulletin on the yellow sheet that you could consider, and I'd be happy to tell you more about them if you, if you want to read one of them.